0: righty. thank you so much for joining me for this Shift Gold interview. I'm really excited today. If you've been following Shift Gold news over at shiftgold.com/news, and if you're not, you should be. Uh, you will have seen over the last several months we've added on uh, more data-driven analysis. And today with me, I've got Tony. He's the guy writing that stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about technical analysis, and then maybe dig a little bit into the comics, which is an interesting thing that. He's been following and writing about. So, Tony, thank you so much for taking a little time to join me. How are you today?
1: Great, great. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, well, this is great. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Um, you've been writing for this site. I don't I don't know how long it's been, but uh, it really adds a lot, I think, to the analysis that we're doing. So we're we're really excited to have that content and kind of wanted to give people an idea of of, of kind of what you're doing and and how you do it and why it matters. So. But before we get into that, why don't we just talk a little bit, um, tell me a little bit about your kind of background and and how you got into financial analysis to begin with and just kind of where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think for me, it probably started in 2008 with the financial crisis. Um, Prior to that, you know, I was an econ major in college and, you know, I followed the stock market and the economy kind of generally as long as I can remember even well before college. And so, you know, when the financial crisis happened, it, it, caught me by surprise as long as tons of people in the mainstream media, right? right? And, you know, I I started trying to look for reasons to try and understand it. You know, I mean, I remember in college talking about yield curve inversion and whatnot, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't think that gave an adequate explanation. Um, and around the same time in March of 2009, I actually took an internship in London with a uh, global investment bank. And I landed on the trading floor with about a thousand people. And uh, it actually had been about 2,000 people the year before uh, the crisis hit, and you know they had really cleaned house, but there, mm-hmm. it was still a lot of people, a lot of activity, it was exciting to be there, and um, I was specifically on the stock loan desk, so that's where um, basically hedge funds will call this desk to borrow securities so they can sell short those securities, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I started asking around, talking to people and, and there was a lot of literature and whatnot, you know, and, and it's like, okay, well, Freddie Mac was over leveraged 130 to one. And, you know, what was going on with Fannie, um, you know, the banks were not well capitalized. And, you know, you talked to some of the the desks and they were saying how, you know, the collateral, they weren't applying the proper haircuts and, um, you know, very, very in the weeds financial jargon. And, and, you know, while I understood it. I don't think it would be something easy for me to explain to somebody, right. you know, like a friend that's not in the financial world. Sure. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until about a year later and I was still abroad and, and a friend handed me a book um, earmarked to a specific chapter. And, um, you know, I should I should mention at the time, you know, in college, I did lean more liberal lean more towards the left, as I think a lot of people do. And then, you, right. you know, you take some econ courses, <laughs> learn about the world, you see the taxes come out of your paycheck. And all of a sudden, I kind of found myself in this fiscally conservative, socially liberal mindset, mm-hmm. you know, which really doesn't have a place in U.S. politics. Right. Um, and I didn't really feel like I identified with either party. So my friend hands me Atlas Shrugged and he had earmarked uh, Francisco's money is the root of all evil speech. hmm and that just resonated i mean today you know it's still my favorite passage that i've ever read and i'll read it you know once or twice a year i just i just really love how well Ayn rand articulated kind of the hypocrisy of so many people who call money evil yeah um and and anyway so that kind of opened the door i think to uh some libertarian thinkers and then you start reading mises uh, mises and hayek hmm. and rothbard right and um you know, even modern day economists, like, I mean, that's when I first heard of Peter Schiff and I read how economy grows and why it crashes. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything started to click into place, right? Where I think before, you know, I mean, the analogy I sometimes use is before scientists put the sun at the center of the solar system, they put the earth there and they had all these complex equations to explain the planetary movements and, you know, why things move certain ways. And then all of a sudden you put the sun there and, everything makes sense. It's like everything snaps into place. Right. And and to me, that was what happened where you put the federal reserve Mm -hmm. at the center of all of it. And all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense, Mm -hmm. right? How interest rates get suppressed, people get over levered in, into the housing market, Mm -hmm. having too many houses. Right. And, and in the mainstream still today, I mean, people might mention the fed, but they're never considered the cause of the financial crisis. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, so I, I felt like I had figured it out and it was like gold and silver is a great hedge. Mm-hmm. Um, this is late 2010, early 2011. And I started, you know, getting into, into buying it thinking I was going to double, triple my money. And, uh, you know, I had understood what caused it and therefore I knew, knew how to invest. And again, as anybody knows, then you got several years of a pretty bad bear market. Right. Um, and so I found myself in 2015 really confused as to like, what, again, what did I miss? Where are my blind spots? Um, and I challenged myself to really see the other side of the argument. Again, i have been in financial services. You talk to people and a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll admit, they say, yeah, it's a house of cards, but you got to dance while the music's playing. Right. Right. And, um, and then there are other people who, who, you know, take the, it's a cleaner shirt and a dirty hamper. Right. and, you know, I do think there is validity to that argument. I mean, when yeah. you look around the world, Europe is a mess. Yeah. China, people don't trust them, right? And, and when you think about the infrastructure and the liquidity that the US dollar has, uh, you know, there's a case to be made for why it's still standing. Right. Uh, despite prolific spending by the government and all the interventions by the Federal Reserve. They're on top of that. I mean, again, despite how badly politicians try and mess everything up, this is still the number one country of innovation, right? Right. You think about the last 20, 30 years, the U.S. is still the driving force behind most of the innovation that is happening today. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was reminded of something that is, you know, just because something is inevitable does not make it imminent. Right. And that's that's a good that's a good phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And and that kind of resonated with me again. And I I said, okay, so I do think the inevitability of the dollar collapse will happen. Mm -hmm. Then I started asking when, and, you know, with what I did professionally, I did a lot of data analysis in Excel, and then I moved into SQL and some of the programming languages like R and Python. And I said, I can crunch these numbers myself. And so I started to go out and gather the data that's available, starting with probably the debt and the U.S. debt specifically mm. to say, you know, what is the level of interest where that debt spiral starts? Because right. as long as you can make your payments, there's really nothing immediate that's going to happen.
0: Right.
1: You know, and doing that analysis showed that, yeah, I mean, back in 2015, 2016, you know, interest on the debt was under $250 billion, which mm-hmm. again, is an enormous amount of money, but relative to the entire budget right. manageable. So I then started to apply that more generally. Um, across a lot of data points and pretty much gathering data from wherever I could, pulling it in with APIs, whether I was reading in Excel sheets or downloading PDFs and just scraping all that data in and started just trying to crunch it all. And then I made it available through dashboards. And um, and yeah, and so now I've started to turn what I think are the more interesting data points into periodic articles on Shift. Yeah. So, so that's my long-winded response for kind of how how we got here.
0: No, that's great. I love, I love hearing people's kind of, Evolution in terms of their their politics and in the way they view the world, and it's interesting because I actually came from the right. um We kind of ended up in the same place, but interestingly, Atlas Shrugged was also a, a very uh, pivotal pivotal thing for me, as a uh, you know as a, as a conservative who kind of your Rush Limbaugh, um, <laughs> typical neocon, I guess is what you would call it. You know, I had some good instincts, I think, but reading. Atlas shrugged. Really started to kind of push me more towards, you know, more of a libertarian, uh, a worldview. So it's interesting. It's always interesting to see what you and like you said. Then, then the next thing you know, you're reading Mises, and then you're a, then you're a nut, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, let's talk a little bit about just kind of generally what you're doing. I, I like to call it technical analysis, for lack of a better term. That might not be the best term. Um, how do you kind of crunch
1: this data? What's kind of your process? What What are you looking at? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, technical analysis to me, you know, I, I you could call it that, I guess. I mean, a lot of people in, in, the, in the trading community view technical analysis as charts and, yeah. you know, Fibonacci levels and cup and handle patterns and that kind of stuff. And to be honest, I, I you know, I don't do a lot of that. I, I read about it and I see it because I do think there's some self-fulfilling prophecies there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll see technical levels that that will be a cap on a price, right? Price will come up, knock against it a couple of times. And then all of a sudden, you know, once it breaks through, it really breaks through. But um, yeah, the stuff that I'm doing, I think is more saying, okay, I understand the fundamental picture, but let me get the data behind it and the Mm -hmm. analysis behind it. Um, Not to get too into the weeds, but yeah, I use a language called R and I've pretty much fully automated all the data gathering process. So I'm pulling data from probably 20, 25 different places. And I get an email report at the end of the day that says, if any jobs failed, if they do, I go in and tweak it. And it, and it kind of pulls it all down and I'll, I'll do the analysis, you know, on the back end automatically so that, you know, the next morning I can refresh some of the dashboards that I have and it just mm-hmm. automatically pops up. Now, that being said, when I'm writing articles, you know, it's more about telling a story with that data. Yeah. Right. So it's trying to identify trends and more importantly, changes in the trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so what I've done, again, even though some of it's automated, the, the storytelling is more looking at the data and trying to find a different view that says, OK, something might have changed here. Um, now, when COVID hit, it's like everything started blowing out, right? Like all yeah. these trends started changing. And, and across pretty much all the measures that I was looking at, everything started to kind of go haywire. And so it was very interesting you know, early in, in 2020 to kind of watch and follow that data. And to kind of see what happened. And yeah, again, I mean, you're talking, you know, deliveries on the COMEX, just, just to kind of put things in perspective, were 25,000 total contracts in 2018. In 2019, it jumped to about 63,000. Mm. And by 2020, that number jumped to 250,000 wow. contracts actually delivered. So, you know, it's, it's just like the, the the change was dramatic. Um you know and, and we can get into kind of some of the, the the inventory, which is one of the the more important data points I'm looking at right now but uh, but yeah, I mean the the general idea is you can talk a lot, you can read the news and you've got all these different people's opinions, but to me it's when you look at the data, you're going to be able to kind of filter out other people's opinions and really try and get at what's happening.
0: Yeah, one of the things uh, I really enjoy reading your stuff because I do tend to look at things more from, from macro. I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm the guy saying it's inevitable, but as you point out, it's not necessarily imminent. And, and I find a lot of this stuff that you write really helps kind of fill in some of the blanks. Like um, just for instance, you, you do an article every month on uh, the, the U S debt, how much the debt is expanded, but then you break it down. This is how much of, you know, five-year debt and 10 year debt and 30 year debt. And so you, you start to see the, the kind of dynamics within the dynamics we're looking at like the jobs markets you know you you look at those those trends and in the internals and it really kind of helps um you know you get the headline I wrote an article today just about retail sales and it's kind of funny because when retail sales were going up that was good news and now retail sales didn't go up and that's still good news according to the the mainstream speed you don't really get anything other than than punditry uh, so I, I really think what you're doing is adding a lot of uh, a lot of value to kind of understanding especially in in the more short term you know why are some of these things happening today um that, that may seem as outliers um yeah looking at the gold and silver market what are just some of the things you mentioned the comex but what are some other things that you look at in terms of um uh, just kind of trying to analyze what's going on with gold and silver
1: yeah. I mean, and again, it, you know, I kind of look at the market generally because I think, you know, some of the macro trends that you talked about really can drive the market, right? Jobs numbers and CPI data, when that number's coming out, the volatility in gold and silver really start to mm-hmm. start to move. So um, I think, you know, first and, and to, to mention the debt, right? So, you know, everybody would say, okay, if Fed increases rates 1%, that's an extra $300 billion. And it's like, well, not not necessarily, Right. right? Uh, you know, and it's not going to happen overnight because the debt is made up of multiple different maturities, right? And, you know, 30-year bonds that are coming off are still at higher rates than the new 30-year bonds are issuing. So right. in, in a way, they're still refinancing at a lower rate in 30-year bonds. Now, mm-hmm. on the short side of the curve, where the bills are, that's a whole different story, you know? And one of the things that that I I, I, I think right now, there's two really key data points that I'm following. One is that that interest on the debt that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, right, you know, I mentioned this, but back in 2016, the the interest was $250 billion. And in March of 2020, on the first failed Fed rate hiking cycle, it got up to $385 billion. So you're talking about $135 billion more just on interest. right? Um, And then, you know, Fed drops rates to zero and, and everything starts kind of moving down. And so by April of the following year, you're only paying $310 billion, which again, is still a lot, but it's not going to destroy, you know, that's not where the debt spiral starts. Right. right? But in a year, we're now at 445 billion trailing 12 month interest. Now That's again, it's not unmanageable, but it's starting to move up and it's yeah. moving up quick. And you got to think that we haven't even really begun to feel the impact of the rates. Right. Cause it takes about three months to really filter through the bills but then, you know, it can take a year or two to really start to see it in the notes. And so I think that's why the Fed is really hoping this is a quick inflation fight, because they yeah. can't keep rates up this high, or that is when that debt spiral could begin, right? And, and I think we're going to be seeing $500 billion or more in interest payments by the end of the year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. it's. it's I keep trying to play out in my head how the Fed's going to play this, you know, because they're still talking tough. Right. Um, my my gut was that they would as soon as they got that first sign that CPI was cooling a little bit that they would try to pivot and they didn't. But I guess we'll see in September what they really do. But it's it's you know the you get psychology in play you can't ever account for psychology. I guess that's why you have to kind of lean on and data as much as you can. But right, I, don't I feel like I feel like the Fed is a little bit like uh, the, the bully in the in the schoolyard. You know they got to keep their chest puffed up. Unless somebody sees through through the uh, right through the facade,
1: it, it is a lot of tough talk. And I think when the rubber meets the road will be if we are really in a bad recession that they actually have to acknowledge right because right. they've changed the definition. Not which a complaint. Pretend, yeah. Um, but right now, I think they see inflation because, and again, they need to make this a quick fight, right? right. And that's why I think they're talking so tough because they can't I mean they can't extend this right if inflation lasts I think they're saying what 2.3 percent next year I mean they are praying right. that inflation gets down that way that low yeah. because if it doesn't and they've got to keep rates elevated for for an extended period it's I mean the math is simple right this isn't you know very complex equations that we have to run I mean you look at the the, the balance of the debt you look at the the distribution of what People are holding it and and again the treasury knows this too right if you look at the maturity they are they they spent all of last year as the fed was kind of talking about the idea of raising rates the fed the treasury was out there doing everything they could to extend the maturity they were trying yeah. to lock in rates and you can see it i mean they were getting rid of bills as much as they could mm-hmm. so that if the fed had to raise rates they've got a cushion they've got at least some window because i mean if they were still sitting there with 5 trillion dollars in bills i mean that is that that is debt that's going to turn over quickly at higher right. rates they cannot handle so yeah. i definitely think that they 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 are you know there is some plan behind all of this. And I think Yellen and Powell work together to make sure that, you know, Powell's like, don't worry, we're going to be raising rates. So she's doing her thing to extend maturity. And and that that way, when they raise rates, it's not that bad. But again, you know, they have a short runway. And if inflation doesn't come down, um, they're in trouble. And that's why they continue to talk tough, because they really have to talk it down. If they start hinting at a pivot and then inflation expectations, and then people start to think that they're not going to fight it, Things could fall apart. And so yeah. they've got to talk as tough as they can. And I think they're willing to have a recession for sure. Yeah. Um, if it if it can mean that that it will be a quicker inflation fight. Right. Peter Schiff calls it open
0: mouth operations. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Oh yeah. They're absolutely. running their
0: mouths trying to to cycle. Wait, wait a minute. I I thought that the Fed was independent. You're saying that they're like yeah. working together with the government? No. <laughs> one of yeah. the one of the silliest myths in uh in in all of uh the financial world is this idea of fed independence anyway. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the COMEX because that's something okay. you usually do two or three um, articles a month kind of tracing what's going on with it. And uh, it's been very really educational for me. So let's start really basic because I don't think necessarily everybody knows what is the COMEX?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So where, where some of the macro stuff is, is great to follow. I think you're going to see the movements happen on the COMEX Mm -hmm. and and what the COMEX is, is it's a futures exchange and, and go back, you know, however long ago it started, it was a way for people to hedge themselves. So a farmer knows he's going to have to sell wheat, right? He wants to lock in a price. Mm -hmm. He wants to know what he's going to get for that year. Right. He locks in a price because the price can change a lot. Right. And, and if the price collapses and he's got to now sell all this wheat, you know, it changes very much his ability to plan for the future. Right. Um, or you know think about think about airlines right Mm -hmm. they have fuel charges and so they can hedge their expenses to a certain degree by buying a futures contract i I want to buy this much oil at this price on this date Mm -hmm. and so that is what the comex was originally intended for was for a way for people to kind of hedge risks and plan in the future now what has happened is you know this has become a speculator's paradise right? right i mean you can go in there and and take again take gold for example the margin requirements right now are about three and a half percent that means I can put sixty five hundred dollars down and control a hundred ounces of gold right and and that means I'm getting a 20, you know a, a twenty to one plus mm-hmm. exposure to the price movement right now it cuts both ways it can wipe right. you out but it can also allow you to double your money much quicker mm-hmm. right um, and so so you know what 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 initially started as kind of a way for people to hedge their risk has become, you know, a a much more um, a busier place, if you will, with a lot more people that are that are taking bets on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you think about negative oil last year, right? Right. Um, Now, again, we can get into contango and backwardation and that kind of stuff. But, but you know, what that what that was, was a lot of people were holding oil contracts, and they did not want to take delivery. And they were willing to pay you to take oil because they couldn't find a way to store. it. Now something like that's never going to happen in gold, right. uh, because the storage fees in gold are much lower, and you know it's much easier to store gold than it is a tanker full of oil. Right. Um, but yeah, so long story short, you know it's a futures market. That has now been kind of uh, was originally intended for just hedging, but has become you know a broader audience of people participating in the market. And and that's also another analysis that I do is the, the equipment of traders report. So it shows you all the participants and kind of how they're positioned in the market. Mm-hmm.
0: So the COMEX actually has vaults, right? It holds it holds gold and silver.
1: Correct. Yeah, they have registered vaults and they they print every day they have the number of vaults who they are it's like brinks hsbc jp morgan and it will say exactly how many ounces they have and now there's two there's two types of 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 categories right there's pl- uh, there's uh registered mm-hmm. and there's eligible now let's take a situation right let's say i i want to speculate on the price of gold mm-hmm. right so i'm going to buy a contract for let's say december delivery now What'll end up happening is I'm going to hold that pretty much up until the very end. And then I'm going to roll it forward, Mm -hmm. right? Because I don't actually want to take delivery of the gold because right now I'm only posting $6,500 per contract. If I want to take delivery, I've got to post the entire $180,000, right? right? I don't necessarily want to do that. I want to keep my leverage up. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is is that as we get closer to the December contract expiring, I might roll it to March or, well, actually it'd be February or June, right? Um, You have major months, what are called major months, and you have minor months. Now, gold and silver generally alternate months, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for example, August is a a major month in gold and then silver is a major month in silver. And by major, I mean, that's where a lot of the liquidity is. That's where you'll see open interest in gold at 400000 uh, in a major month, whereas in a minor month, it will be 5,000. Right. right. So it's very dramatic and different, but what you also see is that in the minor months, um, those contract holders are much more likely to take delivery. Mm-hmm. Right. So whereas in a major month, you might only get one or 2% of contract holders taking delivery. You might get 50 we've seen a hundred percent. And then actually something that's been really interesting to follow recently is a lot of people are opening contracts mid month for immediate delivery. Hmm. Uh, What that means is, let's say that, you know, it's called first notice day, there's a 1000 contracts open, generally speaking, all of those are going to now stand for delivery. Mm -hmm. But during the month, you'll see contracts open, and people take immediate delivery of it, right. Mm -hmm. So they're posting the full amount to just take down the metal. And what happens in a delivery is it's there's a warrant attached to every um, registered bar. Mm-hmm. And that warrant, you know, if I'm if I'm taking delivery and you're the short seller, then that warrant's going to pass from you to me. Right. But that metal's not actually moving; it's staying in the Comex vault, and it's simply the ownership is changing from you to right. me.
0: Now, one of the things that people talk about a lot, um, and and oftentimes is kind of a almost a conspiracy kind of thing, is the fact that there is a lot more contracts
1: out there than there is actual metal. Correct. Uh, absolutely, and that's not a secret. I mean, that is a known right. fact. I mean, they published that data, but 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 same thing with the bank, right? Everybody knows the bank doesn't have right. all of our deposits on on hand. Um, they have enough, what they think is to meet meet the demands of the customers.
0: Right. I guess the conspiracy is is that we're we're in an imminent. There's an imminent risk of a uh, we would have called it a bank run back in the day, but a but a vault run where all of a sudden you have more people wanting to take delivery of gold than or silver even than it actually exists i guess that's where you kind of find the
1: the the chatter and i guess that's feasible yeah. right it it absolutely is, and Mike, you hit you hit on kind of a point. I mentioned there are two two main data points that I'm following right now, and the first one is like I said, the debt. The second one is is not even necessarily the delivery volume, but it's the metal leaving the vault, mm-hmm. right? Because with the delivery volume, a lot of times like we can be trading contracts back and forth, and the metal never leaves the vault, right? Right. But but if all of a sudden you start worrying that your bank's not going to have cash on hand, that's when you actually walk down to the bank and you take your money out. Right. And if you look at what's been going on right now, and you look at the data, the amount of gold leaving the vaults is is incredible. Now, so when you say that, that in...
0: would be like, I take, uh, you know, I take my bars and and I have them delivered to my house and put them in my own vault, right? It's it's coming out of their system completely.
1: Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah like like you know it's not just going from registered to eligible eligible means you know you're not making available for delivery it's yours it's got your name on it but it's Mm -hmm. still sitting in a comex vault right i think when it's coming out of the vault that's when the old adage is if you don't hold it you don't own it and i think people are taking that to heart right now Mm -hmm. um where where you know they were comfortable i think leaving it in the comex vaults and just having their name on it and now you're just seeing i mean every day you're seeing just massive withdrawals um and it's it's really interesting to watch and i'm i've been waiting for it to slow down and it it hasn't i mean Hmm. you know and and to put things into context historically so back pre-covid um going to your your point of the amount of contracts versus available metal um, at that point you had i mean it was over a hundred meaning a hundred paper contracts Mm -hmm. per ounce of metal that was registered in a comex vault and in september 2019 it saw Full delivery, meaning every single registered ounce was requested for delivery, and they actually had to pull metal out of eligible into registered. Now right. that's September of nineteen. That's before COVID hit, right. right? Fast forward to March, and you've got this dislocation between the LBMA, which is the London Gold Market, mm-hmm. and the COMEX, and the prices are getting completely out of whack. And so the LBMA calls up COMEX and is like, "We can help you out, but you've got to change your rules. You've got to make." Are 400 ounce bars eligible for delivery in your system? And so, obviously, the Comex wants to ensure confidence in the system. Right. They said, "Okay, you see this huge supply of gold come in," and I'm talking. We were you had 10 million of ounces total in the Comex system that's registered and eligible and and again 95% of that was actually eligible meaning not available for delivery right and all of a sudden that 10 million surged to 40 million in a few mm. months so you're talking about a, you know a huge increase right and um and and not only that but but the the amount that's registered exploded right you're mm-hmm. talking under a million to 20 million is now wow. sitting there now i think personally i think that was a confidence game right i think that right. was to say hey don't worry We've got a backstop. We've got plenty of gold, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Um, And, and I think people were fine with that for a bit, but I think that theory is being tested right now. And like I said, and and it's happening across all the vaults, they're all losing money or sorry, metal. Um, And, and it's, it's really accelerated. And so that's the one that I'm really tracking very closely, but, but it does kind of mix in with the delivery volume, right? Because people are taking delivery, they, they take the warrant and then they take that money out of the vault. right? Um, and so you're right. I think there is a, a, a vault run going on and people want to see how deep, you know, that metal really is. And, you know, I think while the futures and the paper contracts are all trading and you're seeing gold kind of fluctuate around the 1750, 1800 level, I think the smart money is saying, I will take your 1780 gold and I will take it right into my pocket. Yeah. Uh, And, and I think we're seeing that unfold right now.
0: So you think there's kind of a psychology thing that's going on in, in certain segments.
1: Yeah. I think people are, I wouldn't say losing faith, but you know, you, you wouldn't see this kind of activity, right? I mean, it's not, it's not easy to take delivery, right? You got to find a place to put it, you know, they already handle that for you, pay a small storage fee. It's fine. So, it's like taking your money out of the bank. You don't yeah. want to do that. Right. You don't have a vault in your house. Why, like, why are you taking it out of the banking system? You're only really doing that if if you're starting to question whether they have everything they say that they have.
0: It's interesting because you know, the the I feel like the, the kind of mainstream narrative on gold right now is nobody really wants gold, and and it's kind of yeah, you know, it's the it, it it didn't provide an inflation hedge because it was being brought down, and 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 yet you're saying apparently a lot of people want to have gold. So there's almost a, a disconnect there from what you get from kind of the narrative and what you're seeing in the data, right? Absolutely,
1: and and I think that's really what it, what it is, right? On the surface, everything looks fine. You know, it's like people are smashed. You, you, you know, the price gets smashed when the Fed comes out with their hawkish talk, because everybody's like, no, no reason to hold gold. Um, you know, but I, I think the smart money is looking at what's going on and saying, sure, it may not be imminent, but this is unsustainable. And so I'm going to take mine out and I'm going to keep it with me. Um, and, and what I like to see with this acceleration is I think it's, it's showing that people think that maybe we're getting a little bit closer. Um, right. Because I, and again, I think it goes back to what I was saying with, with the fed and the debt, and that's how I think all of this is interrelated. And that's why, you know, I try and look at all this data because it's like they have a short runway. They mm. need this to be fast. And it's like, you know, short 0% inflation last month. Not true, right? right? Your prices are still going up. My prices are still going up. Right. And the sticky prices are the ones that are starting to go up. And, mm. and you know, you've talked before and, and the the suppression of things like how fast rents are going up and the way that they've completely changed how shelters calculated in the CPI and hedonics and substitution. It's all driven to try and give that confidence that, like the Fed can keep rates low because right. that's where they need to get back to. Everything's
0: and, fine, nothing to see here.
1: You know, it's all great. Right. We got exactly. this exactly. Exactly, everything is fine. Inflation's under control, which we know that inflation was never running at two percent; it was running much right. hotter. Of course, um, but the mainstream takes that. But again, I think that what you're seeing in the gold market underneath the surface with the physical metal is is some astute investors that are looking at the situation and saying if for any reason this inflation fight drags on things are going to get ugly yeah. and um, and I think you know that's where you want really want gold and silver and you want it in your possession not just yeah. sitting in a vault somewhere that has your name on it
0: right what's your thoughts on the uh, the so-called reddit squeeze that they tried to pull off in the silver market back in I guess what it's last year the year before time time runs together but yeah uh, it
1: was February but, but they did
0: manage to push the price up
1: yeah and you know what honestly um I'm a little disappointed because I think there was it had legs right mm-hmm. and um if you if you do the right vehicles right like slv has a lot of language in that prospectus that gives them the flexibility to to not necessarily have all the metal that they need Um, you know, immediately on hand and all that kind of stuff where, um, and sorry, just to give you a little backstory. So Wall Street bets is where that originally took place. Right. right? And um, somebody had wrote a really good article that said, Hey, there's not enough silver out there. Mm -hmm. This is something that you squeeze and you were squeezing the big banks, right? You start taking this metal out and start making them show their cards. um, You're going to see a run. And, And the moderators at Wall Street bets actually kind of snuffed it out they wanted to focus on GameStop at the time. And they said, that's where our attention should be. That's where we want to point our resources. So any posts that were coming up on silver were squashed. And so uh, a new forum popped up called wall street silver. Mm -hmm. um, And they've got about 200,000 members. I post a lot of stuff up there. Um, And, and, you know, that community has been growing. And while it's not in the headlines, um, I do think that, it, that that short squeeze is actually still kind of going on behind the scenes. Interesting. Now, we talked about gold and the amount of gold leaving the vaults, but with silver, it's slightly different. Um, what's happening is the amount of registered is shrinking mm-hmm. and it's shrinking a lot. So since the start of the silver squeeze that you mentioned, uh, the amount of registered is down about 60%. So that's a lot. I yeah, mean, you're lot. talking about draining a vault that's down 60%. You repeat that for another year, and all of a sudden, there's no registered silver available for delivery. Hmm. Um, now, I don't want to get into too much of it here, but but there's another really good poster on, on Wall Street Silver called Ditch the Deep State. So always appreciate that that yeah. name, name handle. Um, and, and he's kind of got a theory. And he, he did a, a recording that talks about how there could have been a silent default on silver hmm. back in February. And I had published an article about this where kind of overnight the data actually changed and it changed to such a significant degree. It would have been 12 standard deviations above normal. And basically what happened was there was a huge amount of delivery volume. And then the next day they basically republished the numbers and it was half huh. the amount of numbers. Now, again, um, you know, this, this guy has a really good analysis on it. A great article. I can send you some links and you can put it in the show notes. Yeah. I'd like to do that. But yeah, I think I think he he does a really good job explaining what happened and 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 some theories behind it.
0: So what's the difference, just for people who might not know the nuances? You mentioned SLV and and then uh, you have GLD in, in the in there, so you have these ETFs. What's the difference between an ETF and a future? Or is there a difference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. E- ETF is something that you can buy. I, I mean, you can buy futures contracts on Schwab and E-Trade and stuff, but, but an ETF is, is, is a share of a of, of fund um, right. that basically has the metal sitting behind it, right? And and even the ETFs, there's some nuances between them. So, so for example, at Wall Street Silver, they say, you know, obviously you want to take delivery, but if you can't take delivery, PSLV is actually a much better vehicle than SLV because mm-hmm. PSLV has their own vault. And they actually take the money out of the system, uh, sorry, the metal out of the system, right? And right. to put it in their own vault or SLV kind of, uh, you know, it can be in that COMEX system sitting in eligible category, right? Um, but but either way, the ETF is easier to trade. Um, it's very liquid. It trades throughout the day. Futures contracts are, are more expensive. You're using a lot more leverage, right? right? Buying an ETF is like buying a stock, mm-hmm. right? You don't need to use leverage. You can go in, if every day you want to buy $10 of silver, you can do it with PSLV and buy a share every single day. Yeah, A futures contract is going to give you far more exposure. It's far riskier. Um, and, and again, you're, you're, you're talking about 5,000 ounces of silver that you're controlling with each contract.
0: Right, right. Okay, that's a, that's a really good explanation because I talk a lot about the difference between physical and an ETF. And there's certainly reasons to, to hold both. You know, either or both, depending on what your what your goals are. But um, I think for a lot of people, it all those nuances get lost. I think it's important to to make those things clear. I know there's one uh, there's one gold ETF. I can't remember the name of it, but but you can actually exchange your shares for the physical metal. You know, if if you have enough to get an ounce, you can get an ounce of gold out of your. um, So there's different ways they set those up.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, and the the ETF is kind of a good way. What I'll do is I'll buy slowly into an ETF, like every month, putting, putting money into PSLV. Mm -hmm. And then when I feel like I've got 500 ounces or so, I might convert that into an order, right? That brings down my premiums. It's just a way to dollar cost average in. Um, so it's a good way to, to, in my mind, you know, convert dollars into an ETF that then becomes actual metal that you're, that you own. Right.
0: Right. Um, so any other, any other thoughts on the COMEX before we kind of wrap up and ties in not knot
1: um yeah i mean i'll say one thing people talk a lot about price manipulation and price suppression um that's now- yeah
0: that's something that's interesting to me because um you know i do a podcast every week and and uh almost every week somebody will say in the comments well what about the manipulation and it's like yeah i don't have the bandwidth to I'm a I'm a journalist by training. So for me, I need to have I need to have evidence before I'm going to tell a story and just asserting something to me doesn't make it true necessarily. But then on the other hand, there's a part of me that's like, well, you know, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that that there's all this manipulation going on. So I, that's something that's interesting to me. And I don't know how to answer the question. So I just ignore it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, people feel very strongly about this. and oh, so yeah. you, you, you do want to try it carefully. But. know i do have do have some views and i'm with you i want to see the data first before i I speculate right now with that being said you know i i think there's there's two types of suppression that we should quickly cover one is the short term and the other is kind of the long term now in the short term i mean jp morgan just had a couple guys get indicted on the fact that they've been spoofing metal now That being said, I don't necessarily think it's always to the downside, right? I mean, sometimes you'll see, you know, and and that's the thing is these guys know where these technical traders are talking about. We talked Mm -hmm. about the chart patterns and, you know, is a hard level, right? And you can spoof down to hit it below 1800 to hit all those sell orders, right? And then create the snowball down, but you can do it on the way up as well, right? Because you might have a lot of shorts that need to cover. And I think that's actually what happened. You know, we saw gold go all the way down below seventeen hundred, mm-hmm. and then it rallied back up because I think right. I think all of a sudden there were too many people on the short side, um, and that's what the commitment of traders report showed, and and so the rebound I think uh, looked looked imminent there, but um but anyway, so people cry whenever it gets. Pull down but they don't recognize that the same activity is happening all the way up
0: right it's, a, it's um, the same it's the same thing with like when when gas prices go up it's the evil gasoline companies that are gouging prices but then when
1: gas prices go way down nobody nobody complains about that it's kind of the same right. dynamic right exactly exactly and and again i mean this is happening for sure i mean again jp morgan just had a court case on it uh you can read about it i mean they were spoofing metal where basically they come in with a bunch of contracts to try and hit a certain level that they know will trigger other orders and then they cover afterwards right and they can
0: do that because a lot of this stuff is computer computer generated so they're you know there's you have a set price when boom the computer's going to sell it's not like you have to have somebody sitting here by the computer to 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 put all of this into action so it is pretty easy to but i guess the the Important thing to understand about that is it's not, they might change the price of gold today, but it's not going to change the price of gold next month. What they did today is not going to ram- have ramifications way down the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can. If you think about kind of what's happened over the past two years, where, you know, the price has kind of been capped and you know push back down and i think that has right. hurt some of the psychology of gold but you're right i mean right over the long term i mean anybody who thinks there's price suppression has been watching a chart because it was three hundred dollars or around three hundred dollars in 2000 and now we're sitting you know six times higher right, right? If, if there was price suppression they're doing a really bad job of it but that being said i do think there is natural price suppression in the system and by that i mean the, the comex in the futures market makes it a fractional reserve system right meaning they can meet demand with the paper instantaneously mm-hmm. they can they can create as much paper gold as they want to meet demand right and so when you think about it you know all these people who want gold if they're sitting there with paper and they get the same price exposure they're fine and mm-hmm. so it's a fractional reserve system that i think has has dramatically hurt price discovery in gold because you've got a technically unlimited supply of paper that's like fiat make. money exactly and that's why that's why again going back to watching the metal leaving the vault to me seeing that is is so important because i think it's people saying okay i like your paper gold but i would rather have my physical mm-hmm. um so anyway so Bottom line is, I don't know that you need to actually try and suppress because I think the system by itself does that, right? Okay. And the COMEX can actually do things with CME where if like, if if gold gets too long and it gets too high, they can just raise margin requirements. So let's say margin requirements are $6,500 and I'm really long gold and I've only got a little bit to cover and they raise margin requirements to 10,000. I have to now liquidate or Uh post margin. I have two options. Right. Right. So if I, if I need to post margin, then I've got to come up with all that cash. If I got to start liquidating, I start selling all of a sudden it starts triggering right. all the sell orders, the, prices, the yeah, snowball right. happens. Right. So, you know, I don't think it needs to be conspiratorial behind closed doors. I mean, it's pretty much out there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in sense. the open, it's the way the system is designed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, personally, I struggle with conspiracies because I don't give the government and really a lot of people enough credit to be able to pull them off. Yeah. Uh, You know, I've seen how big organizations function and the dysfunction within them. Right. And And nobody can keep a secret. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, anyway, so that's just my thoughts on the matter. But, but I just wanted to mention that before before we wrap up
0: here. Yeah, that's that. That's really uh, that's that's really good. I'm. I we're definitely of the same mind. You know a little bit more about it than I do, but um, I actually something I want to talk about in the show tomorrow because I think I'm finally going to have some time to talk about something besides the Fed. So, since so people keep bringing it up. I feel like I need to I need to address it. So that kind of helps me put some thoughts in order. Um, so. I would definitely like to in the uh in the relatively near future have you back on because there's some some other things I'd like to talk about. You you mentioned the, the COTS report. I'd like to talk about that and uh managed money and, and kind of how all of that impacts the system. But um on the other hand, I don't want people to get bored. So um yeah. so maybe we could wrap it up now, but but maybe in a in a few weeks we can have you back on and, and kind of go over some some more of this stuff because I think it's really important. Um as I said, it's really adding a lot of um, a lot of value to what we're doing over at Shift Gold. Just trying to give people a, a kind of a holistic view of the uh, of the gold and silver marketplace. Obviously, outside of the mainstream, because you're going to get a completely different view if you go read Reuters or Bloomberg yeah. or watch uh, CNBC or whatever. But um, I'm still amused by this retail sales thing that all of a sudden they just just now discovered that changing prices impact retail sales numbers. <laughs> <laughs> they ignored that for months, but now all of a sudden that's a thing. So yeah. Kind of funny. But uh, anything else, anything you want to say to wrap up?
1: No. Nope. Again, just, you know, thank you for, for having me. Um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to come on, happy to come on again. Um, you know, just let me know when.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll do it. I appreciate the work you're doing. And again, folks, you can check out uh, what Tony's writing over at shiftgold.com slash news. And uh, there's a, there's a heading for it and I can't remember what it is, but I actually I can put the heading in the show notes page and you can actually pull up all of those, all of this data analysis and kind of see how things are, are playing out. So look forward to having what's coming up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thank Appreciate you. it.